Welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast. We address the issues, opportunities, and challenges facing women in the development of the metaverse, the biggest revolution since the internet itself. Every week, we bring you conversations with top female talent and business executives operating in the gaming and crypto industries. Here's your host, Lindsay the Boss Poss. The Meta Woman Podcast starts now. Hello, and welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast, part of the Holodeck Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lindsay the Boss Boss, and from struggle to success, we're covering it all. To our returning listeners, thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you for sending me feedback. The messages truly warm my heart. And for all the new listeners, welcome. I hope you enjoy and I hope you'll come back. This week's guest is going to be so much fun because we're going to do a deep dive into the metaverse, which is something that I've touched on, but I haven't haven't really like fully gotten into yet. So I'm excited for that. For all of you that have been following the evolution of the show, you know that I've started with gaming and wound up in this crazy crossover between gaming, emerging tech, metaverse, all that stuff. Um, and I'm just excited to be able to do more of the metaverse side this week. It's going to be fun. So without further ado, I want to introduce Ashley Crowder, CEO and co-founder of Ventana. Ashley, I would love for you to introduce yourself and Ventana because I think you'll just explain it better and do it more justice than I can. Awesome. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm Ashley Crowder. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ventana. We are a 3D commerce platform that makes it incredibly easy to manage and distribute 3D and augmented reality at scale. We work with a lot of fashion brands. So VF Corp, Hugo Boss, Diesel, helping streamline uh, 3D from design and manufacturing, uh, helping people with B2B sales to replace physical samples and create amazing e-commerce experiences and social media. And then, of course, you can also use that same 3D model in the metaverse or different virtual worlds. Um, so, yeah. Okay, that is so cool. And I know that we're going to be talking about it more. But let's kind of start at the beginning because Ventana has been working in the 3D slash AR slash VR space for almost 10 years, which is super exciting. I know you're coming up on your anniversary here. Mm -hmm. Um Obviously, the emerging tech landscape looks a lot different than what it did 10 years ago. And so I would love to hear about the evolution of the company, how you moved from kind of more entertainment-based services to more platform-based services, how you evolved into the software-as-a-service company that you are today. Yeah. So my background is engineering. I did engineering at USC, got my bachelor's and master's there. Uh, you know, always loved building things. And the USC Engineering School has a partnership with the military called ICT, where they fund research in 3D, AR, VR graphics and tech. And so that's where I first got exposed to all this stuff, like almost 15 years ago now, which is crazy. And I was like, this is going to change the world. This is awesome. But, you know, there were no career paths for that back then. So uh ended up, you know, founding Ventana and... Uh, it was really around how do we create these, you know, immersive experiences to engage consumers. And at the time, web didn't support 3D, phones couldn't do AR. So we did location-based mixed reality experiences for brands like Adidas, Nike, Lexus. And it was usually in retail stores or at sports stadiums or events like South by Southwest. And we built a profitable company doing that. But no one ever had the right 3D files to create this type of content. So we were creating interactive 3D content in game engines like Unity and Unreal to play on our hardware at these different events. Um, 
And we would get just like these manufacturing design files from these brands that were way too big and not in the right format and required all this manual work. So we started writing software to help automate this. So that is really what led us to where we are today. So in 2019, we said, you know what? We wrote all this software to make it easy to manage and optimize 3D models. Now, every web browser can support 3D and everyone has a phone that can do some pretty decent augmented reality. So we decided to raise a round of funding and launch our software as a standalone service. Uh, we launched it February 2020, which is very good timing to then get out of events. <laughs> so that was like crazy. Yeah, wow. was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, the plan had been to like have our events business kind of continue, but open up this new division and COVID obviously we're like, you know what, I'm glad that we wrote all this software and have this product and we are hundred percent focused on our software now. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it really grew from there because obviously with COVID, no one could get physical samples uh, from from China, um, where you know ninety nine percent are man manufactured. No one was going into retail stores. People really started adopting three D so much faster because there's really no option. Um, so even people who were afraid of new tech were kind of forced into it. <laughs> and then the benefits have just been so huge from, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of cost savings to reducing carbon footprint by not making samples, increasing speed to market, um, you know, increased conversion rate because it's a better consumer experience online. So COVID forced people to try it. And then the results spoke for themselves for them to keep going. <laughs> so I want to pick apart this sample portion just because that that interests me a lot. I mean, I by no means a fashion person. We recently had the Met Gala and <laughs> I love mm -hmm. that, but I'm not, you know, I, I am not my sister-in-law actually has a degree in fashion design and merchandising. So um I would love to know more about what the sample process previously was and how you've used Ventana to like you said, reduce the carbon footprint of that process. That's fascinating. So can you describe yeah. that a little bit more from start to finish? Yeah. So we, we typically work with brands who design and manufacture their products. So whether that is, you know, Hugo Boss or Diesel. So like they, they design, they manufacture, they might sell direct to consumer, but they also sell within retail stores. And so the typical process is you design, you make a sample, you ship that sample out to your various teams to review, you make changes, you go make another sample, you come back, uh, you know, till you finalize that maybe, and then maybe the design is final. And then you order more samples because they need to go to Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's showrooms for people to view and purchase. So it was this very time consuming, um, physical product process, right? Whereas once COVID hit, you know, all, all the factories in Asia were shut down and logistics are still a problem right now. I mean, I moved into this new house. I have no furniture because <laughs> I ordered furniture in November and it's still not here in May. So yes. there is um, a good, just as an interlude, there's a good tweet that said, yeah. due to supply chain issues, I am fully out of serotonin. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah my, I'm in this empty white room, but that's why. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and so uh, you know, it's still a problem. And so people, you know, we're like, why are we doing this physically? You can have a true 
interactive 3D model. You want to make changes, you make changes instantly, and then you upload and share that link. And you can collaborate in real time on the 3D. Um, so we had clients who had a six-month sales cycle with where they were selling these, move down to three weeks with 3D. Um, and then on wow. average, you know, making one shirt is about five kilograms of carbon of what it takes to make that one shirt. We had a client, they, they moved their whole collection to 3D. So they had uh, almost 900 pieces that they used to make samples of that now is purely 3D. And they're using Ventana to sell to Nordstrom's Bloomingdale's using 3D instead of physical. So 900 times 5 kilograms is like over 4.4 tons of carbon saved. So that's equivalent of driving like 130,000 miles in a gasoline car, which is amazing. Wow. That's safe. Yeah. And, and then on top of that, like samples cost money. Samples on average can be $100 per creation. So, you know, 100 times 900, you're saving $90,000 per season on not making those samples. So it's better for the environment. It's saving you money. It's increasing your speed to market. There's no reason you should not be <laughs> using 3D. You know, that's so cool. I wonder. So that's that is like you said, you're a B2B SaaS company too. I know that there has been a B2C, particularly. I remember reading about how Snapchat was allowing you to try on clothes. Um, in you know, basically, I think it was more so augmented reality, using your own camera to sort of put clothes on your body. Do you see yourself moving into a B2C space? As I mean, you just you've just reached two years, so I'm not a. <laughs> that would be yeah, quite a pivot. So, but yeah, where what does that look like for you? Yeah, so our clients are always going to be businesses, but they are creating these experiences for consumers as well. So that same three gotcha. D model they used for that to sell to Nordstrom's and that B2B sale, mm -hmm. they can also put on their website with, with our software. So they can, they can have it on their e-com site so you can see it interact in 3D. You can hold up your phone and place it in your environment with augmented reality. We are working with the social media platforms. Um, so whether it's Snapchat or Meta, to, do, to put a 3D model into those platforms, it has to meet their specifications. And so this is again coming into what Ventana's real secret sauce is and the, the core value we provide is we can take these big manufacturing files and instantly convert them to meet these various specs. So you, you know, you can take that manufacturing file, upload to Ventana, and then you can instantly publish to Facebook or Instagram or to Snapchat. Uh, so we're just saving people a bunch of time there, whereas before they'd have to do manual work. Snapchat's definitely the furthest along in clothing try-on. It's still not perfect, but they're definitely like far out ahead. They've been acquiring a lot of companies in the space, super excited about everything they're building. It's just not quite there yet. So, but it's coming. <laughs> it's so cool though. And I want to talk more about the partnership that you announced with Meta, uh, aka Facebook which I also mm -hmm. always make this joke, but I promise this podcast was announced before they changed their name. It's yeah. been a whole thing. Um, but can you tell me about that partnership? And I know you talked a little bit about Snap, but just how you see Ventana working with social media companies. Um, and that that's a much different client than say Diesel Jeans or Hugo Boss, right? So, it's the same so what is it? 
Diesel, Diesel is the is our client who's using us mm-hmm. for B2B sales, their e-commerce site, and publishing on Meta. Does that make sense? So yeah. like yeah, we're enabling, yeah. So we're enabling our brand. So the the partnership we set up with Meta, kind of same thing. Like they were they wanted to launch 3D and AR ads. Um, in order to do that, they needed 3D models that met certain standards. So mm-hmm. just kind of to take a step back, like a typical manufacturing design file is 200 megabytes in size or bigger. If you want to use 3D on Facebook, it needs to be under 6 megabytes in size. So that's like 5% of the original size. So they were struggling with the fact that they were asking brands to manually fix all these files, which they're like, you know, Hugo Boss launches 40,000 products a year. It's like... Right. Would be an yeah. Making a file for yeah, each one yeah. would take. So with yeah. our integration, you can upload these designs to Ventana. We instantly get them to meet Facebook and Instagram specs, and then you can publish. Uh, it's like a click of a button, publish a 3D and AR ad unit, and so it's fully automated. So your social media manager can log in to Facebook or Instagram and create an ad the same way they create a 2D ad today because we're packaging up that 3D model and 3D AR ad unit for you. So you don't have to know anything about 3D, which is great. Right. That's what I was going to say is I know that one of the key points of the product is that no coding is required, which is a little crazy to think about. Yeah, exactly. Like our, our whole mission is to democratize 3D and make it easy. That's how we're going to see more adoption because we know 3D has huge benefits. Uh, it's a better experience. You can increase conversion rate, save money, all the things we've been talking about. The, the barrier has really been, it's difficult and time consuming and I don't have the right staff. You know, That's what we're trying to fix. So cool. What kind of files get uploaded to turn into 3D ads? Trying my um, technical brains trying to catch up with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, just like the car industry designs and AutoCAD programs in 3D, fashion has their 3D design programs. So, for apparel, it's it's browse wearing clothes or typically the apparel 3D design programs. For footwear, they're generally designing in Keyshot or Moto. Um, and so, you know, there, there's all these different 3D design programs which are great for. Mm-hmm design and manufacturing. But again, the file's too big and not in the right format. So Ventana has plugins to a lot of these software. So designers can work the way they work today and then just upload directly and we do the rest for you. So you instantly get this, you know, web viewer you can embed on your website, you know, publish to Meta (laughs) or, or wherever else that you want. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. And yes, I, I have uh, worked with AutoCAD and <laughs> yeah, those files are a nightmare basically. Yeah. Um, can you, with the metaverse coming and companies like yours that are leading the charge in terms of making these experience mainstream, can you just tell me what excites you about kind of staying at the forefront of future tech and what made you passionate? I mean, from 15 years ago as a student at USC all the way up until now and adapting and pivoting in 2020 kind of in a major way. Like what drives you to keep making these experiences available to people? Yeah, I mean, I just love the medium. I think in general, I, you know, I love building things. I love math and science is why I did engineering. But like, I also like to be creative. And with 
the metaverse, it's this combination of engineering and art and creativity that is so much fun for me. And I just think it has so much potential. You know, the metaverse to me, it, it's just the spatial internet. We're just going from the flat 2D websites to like, it can now be interactive and 3D and spatial, whether that's still on my laptop browser and walking around a virtual space or fully putting on a headset and, you know, you know immersing myself in VR. It's just so much fun. And, you know, I'm part of a group, we meet in VR on Wednesday nights and it's really fun. And like we were doing that pre pandemic and then the, the pandemic, it was amazing because I actually felt like I was seeing friends, <laughs> you know? Uh, so yeah, so I'm, I just like love it and love everything about it. And I want to help make it faster to adopt for everyone. And step one to create any of these types of experiences is you need digital twins or, or 3D models of your products or items that can mm -hmm. work within these different platforms. And so that's really what we're trying to solve for people. And then I'm excited to see all the amazing experiences that they create with them. What is your VR platform of choice that you meet people in? Um, so I just use the Oculus. I've like got it right over here. Uh, I mean, it's 300 bucks. It's cheaper than an iPhone. You know, like, I think that's pretty amazing. That's true. I never thought about yeah. it that way, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I personally love VR chat because it's like weird and wild and everyone like you never know what world you're going to go into. So that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, with this group, it's a lot of industry people and my friend, Christina Heller, the founder of uh, Metastage, she started it years ago. And, and it was really like just to like learn and explore. So like we would, when Rec Room first came out, we met in Rec Room and like half the things didn't work. Like I could only walk backwards for some reason. There was a bug. And, like, <laughs> you know, it, but it was really fun. So we used it as this like fun social virtual meetup, but like to learn new technology and test out new platforms. So. That's really cool. And how has it, I don't know exactly how to ask this question, because obviously we know that we're way ahead of where we are 10 years from now, but I guess are, are we where you expect to be? Or do you think that like, what, what do you think about the pace of growth? I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Um, are we growing, you know, if you think about 10 years ago and where you started or 15 years ago, are we growing at the rate you expected? Or do you think like, ah, we're kind of at the beginning of a really fast pickup now? Or you know, like, what, what does that pace look like for you who's someone who's been exploring in the metaverse for longer than most yeah. of that? <laughs> yeah, I'd say, you know, I obviously hoped it would the adoption would have been faster, but I will say the pandemic really sped things up. Uh, and on top of that, just the advent of NFTs. So you know, NFTs have proven people are willing to pay real money for digital goods, uh, which, you know, we talk with a lot of our, our clients of, Hey, yes, you should use 3d in all these stages of your current process, but you could also be selling digital assets, which is a whole new revenue stream. Cause I want my avatar to look cool in Fortnite or Roblox. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I think the pandemic has has sped up a lot of that, um, but where NFTs have also helped make it exciting is it really democratizes the ownership. So 
right now, if I'm in Roblox and I, you know, buy a Nike hat, well, I can only wear that 3D Nike hat in Roblox. I can't take it out of that game. With NFTs, I own this 3D asset and I can take that 3D file anywhere in the metaverse I want. And that's what's so exciting about the Web3 platforms like Decentraland and Somnium Space that are open because any 3D object I buy there, I own and I can take it with me into these other virtual spaces. So I think, you know, it's a matter of time until, you know, these, these walled gardens like Fortnite and Roblox open up to, to allow that. That just reminds me of when you would go to friends' houses when you were little to play with their toys because you didn't have them. Yeah. And <laughs> it's as if your parents actually bought you the toy and brought it home. <laughs> it was yours forever. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. Yeah. Which is a silly, that's a very like 90s kid analogy right there. But that's exactly what it made me think of. (laughs) And then the kids today, like my friend's kid, she asked for her allowance in Robux, not in American dollars, because she just wants to buy things for her avatar in Robux, because that's where she meets her friends, right? So like this whole generation Mm -hmm. is growing up comfortable and used to buying digital goods and, you know, with digital currency, which is fascinating. That is a really big change. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> definitely a big change. Uh, yeah, tell me well, that was, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was thinking about it. Like I had Beyblades. Actually, I didn't yeah. have Beyblades. I wanted Beyblades. <laughs> um, yeah, much different than Robux. Um, I want to pivot and shift gears a little bit because I do want to talk about what it's been like for you to build this company over 10 years as a female founder. We both, I'm sure, know that securing VC funding for women can be difficult. It's just kind of a different process. I also just finished a great book called Brotopia by Emily Chang, all about Silicon Valley and VCs and stuff. Super fascinating. Um, according to an article in Vogue Business, research has found that historically less than 5% of VC funding has gone to women-owned or women-led businesses. In some cases, there's a backward shift. According to software and data provider PitchBook, this figure has shrank to 2.2% in 2021, despite the creation of women-centric funds, such as Female Founders Fund, uh, which narrows women's shot at our small shot of funding, or just narrows it. So I would love to talk about your experience building your business, because Ventana has the backing of some heavy hitters from the partnership with Meta. And I know Mark Cuban and the formula former Oculus CEO, Brendan Uribe. I hope I'm pronouncing that Arrive, right. yeah. <laughs> Arrive, okay. <laughs> uh, is, is, is among, you know, among many others have, have backed Ventana. And we don't necessarily have to look fully through the lens of gender, but can you just walk me through what the growth and funding experience has been like for you? Yeah, look, I think no matter who you are, funding is hard. <laughs> you start to grow a business, but you need funding. And as as the CEO, my job is to make sure we're bringing in the right partners and investors to grow the business. And mm-hmm. it was something I had to learn. You know, I studied engineering and I wanted to start this company. I knew no one. <laughs> I did not know anything about VC funding when I started. Uh, had to figure a lot of it out. Um, and really started by just going to networking events and trying to learn and asking people to coffee. And, you know, uh, Shameen Walsh was one of our very first backers. She's like a female um, uh, partner at, at a fund who's amazing. 
uh, and has invested in some incredible companies like Sweetgreen all the way to other tech companies. And uh, having her as a mentor was so helpful to like learn the process. I would also say a really great book is Venture Deals. So it was written by a guy who he was an entrepreneur who grew, uh, raised money, sold his company, and now he's a VC. So he writes it from kind of the entrepreneur and the VC perspective. I wish I had read that book before I raised any money. <laughs> I read it a couple years ago. It just it's so helpful and it's not that long. So read it. I suggest it. Um, but so much of of raising money is is it's about trust, right? It's it's showing yes, I have I have this company with real tech and a real business, and I'm going to take it from A to B, and this is the money I need to get there, and this is how I'm going to spend the money. And, you know, investors want to need to be able to trust that you're going to do that, right? That, that's what it comes down to. And I think part of the issue with why so many women and minorities don't have as much funding is they just don't have those networks, right? Like I didn't know mm-hmm. anyone. I had to do tons of networking and reaching out and asking for introductions and building those relationships over time. Uh, to get to the point that said, I cold emailed Mark Cuban and he responded and invested a couple of days later. So that was wild. And, you know, I read an article about how he was investing in NFTs and the metaverse. And I just was like, he's going to love what we're doing. And so I just like found his email and emailed him. So like that can also mm-hmm. happen. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think... Yeah, part of it is is, and that's why it is good that we have these networks and organizations trying to help women and minorities meet more VCs. Again, because I I just think it's a matter of, I, I think so much of it is not malicious. It's just like, who do you know? I've watched them build this before. I know they can do it. Oh, I've never met you before. You know, <laughs> so. Right. Well, and it, yeah. There's definitely a reasons why women and minorities don't have those networks built in right away. But there's also ways around that, which I think is good. Um, so that's, yeah, I can't believe you called email Mark Cuban. That's great. (laughs) I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of that as someone who used to work in communications and I always had to email reporters and reporters are notorious for never responding, which makes sense. They get a billion emails. It's not a problem, but I remember I have like a, 13 follow-ups rule where I'll mm-hmm. follow up 13 times and you can't take it personally because everyone knows that everyone else is busy. You just kind of have to keep oh, yeah. being like, Hey, it's me yeah. again. <laughs> How's it going? Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a multiple texter. I'm a multiple emailer. <laughs> you gotta, awesome. you gotta try to you not be too pushy, but also keep in mind that everyone else is busy and in their own world in order to get into their world, you kind of have to make sure you're always top of mind. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm a yeah. big fan of uh, cold emails too. <laughs> I yeah. wouldn't have thought to cold email Mark Cuban, but you know, <laughs> <Maybe in the future. laughs> yeah. he's going to like kill me because all these people are going to email him now, but uh, that's yeah. how it works out. <laughs> Hopefully he has a good army of, you know, executive assistants and whatnot to filter through yeah. and find the really cool opportunities, which I'm sure he does. He does yeah. um, well, and kind of on that note, there's, there's definitely a place for lodging complaints about this process. Um, thankful that social media has given many people a voice to express injustices that happen in Silicon Valley and in the venture funding world. 
but I would love to focus on some of the positive things you've had in your experience getting funding and potential solutions to make it a more inviting environment for women. So could you tell me what some of, and I know you've mentioned certain relationships specifically, but what were some of the positive ways you were able to interact with potential VCs and what are some of the ways you think the VC environment or just the funding process itself could improve? Yeah, I mean, I've had the the benefit of some really great mentors. You know, another investor is Jamie Montgomery, the founder of March Capital. Uh, I think I met him because I I gave a pitch at USC that he was attending and spoke. And then he's done a lot for female founders. He has an event every year. He gives like a certain number of female founders free tickets, and you know, tries to to help um, with that. I think just building those allies and mentors within your network is so helpful uh, to give you advice and help make introductions. Um, And then how to make it better. I mean, so much, there's like so much we can do, right? So I think, uh, you know, funds can make sure that they're at least seeing a variety of deals. You know, if, if you're looking at your deal pipeline and your deal pipeline is 90% white men, okay, what can you do to get more diverse founders in, in your deal pipeline, right? Like if, if you're not even having the, the pipeline of, the diverse deals, there's no way you're going to actually fund diverse deals, right? So whether that's partnering with a women or minority network or school or, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, I think that could really, really help. And then setting up frameworks for investing. So, you know, so many and and the earlier the stage, stage of your company, the more they're just investing in you. Right. If you're doing a seed round, you don't necessarily have revenue or a business to look at yet. It's it's a little, it's like the the beginning, but it's you. Like, do we trust that you can build this? And so that can get very subjective quickly. Right. And so I think it funds building frameworks of of analysis of, of how they're evaluating founders and their companies and keeping that consistent will help also make it a more fair playing field right across gender and ethnicity and everything else. It's yeah, all those studies of when you remove the name of a resume and who gets hired. is Yeah, I essentially feel that same vibe from what you just said. But uh, I do think that it's it's, I mean, we live in a world where there's a lot of unconscious biases. And it's hard to even if you think a per- you're a person who doesn't hold them in some way, shape or form, you probably do. So right. I, I can see what you're saying and trying to make that process more consistent to limit the impact of those at least is one way of getting different people in the room. So that does make sense right. to me. Um, and switching over to you for a second, because we've talked all about Ventana, we've talked all about VC, VC funding and what it's like to be a female founder. But I want to know about, you know, you and how you got to where you are. I know that you mentioned that you started engineering at USC, um, but it's, it's pretty, you know, it takes a lot of gumption to, <laughs> to be a, run a, uh, a tech and specifically a metaverse focused 3D technology uh, company for 10 years. So tell me a little bit about yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm one of those people where I get an idea and I just 
nothing. I have crazy, like blindsided focus almost to a fault and I'm going to do it. So my poor parents growing up, uh, <laughs> you know, if I wanted to do something, I was going to do it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, growing up, I, I loved math and science. I hated writing with passion. So I would do everything to like take more math and science classes. And I loved building stuff. Um, my dad was an electrician, uh, and he, he, the company he worked for went out of business when I was in first grade. So he decided to just, you know, start his own company. So it was him and a friend doing like, it started as like house calls. Uh, I'd like ride around in the truck on the weekends to construction sites. So my mom could have a break. Um, so I think that's where I got interested in, in engineering. Um, and I, I watched him, you know, it was, it was really hard. It was full on startup, you know, when I was in elementary school, but I watched him grow it to a couple hundred person company that did jobs around the world. And it was really cool to, to watch that, uh, and, and really inspiring. And I was like, you know, I want to build my own company someday. Like that, that was awesome. Um, and so yeah, I did. But my dad, you know, he never got the chance to go to college. So it was like, you know, you're going to go to college. It's like, sounds good. Uh, <laughs> and I put engineering and got in and, uh, you know, ended up like, again, I could avoid as much writing as possible. <laughs> so <laughs> I liked it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I knew I wanted to start my own company wasn't sure what, you know, I worked at British Petroleum for a while. Actually, after I graduated, I worked at an oil refinery. I uh, learned a lot, not my passion <laughs> at all. I was like, what kind of like, yeah. like, I am still friends with some of the people. I mean, refineries are intense, like literal fires happen and you got to work together and figure it out. Um, so I'm still friends with the people there. It just was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I ended up leaving. Uh, I took a leave of absence and, and didn't go back. I got a job programming light shows for DJs on the weekends. Um, and Ooh. that was super fun. <laughs> so it was like finally combining like engineering and art. Uh, it was one of the most fun jobs I ever had. And that's kind of where I was like, all right, how do we take these light shows to the next level? How do we create more interactive experiences? And that's really what led me to, to Coke out in Ventana. So midlife crisis or quarter life crisis to working at a nightclub and <laughs> starting a company. No, I was actually kind of picturing while you were saying that, you know, what I enjoy a lot about music and light shows are a lot of it. And it's that, I mean, I can actually see the, the crossover into kind of 3d models and stuff. Cause it's a very like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think of like, it's it is kind of an immersive thing, right? Like it's it makes Absolutely. everything feel more alive when you have really cool lighting. Like that's um something that I actually really value. I went to college at a place where we had a very good uh, theater program and I met a lighting major my first year and I was like, what the hell? And then after a while she totally convinced me. She actually switched to sound too, but she totally convinced me of the importance of lighting and I feel like ever since then. Yeah. It's that so makes important. that actually transitions pretty well into kind of 3d hands-on things, I think. And yeah, yeah making things feel more way. alive. Yeah. It's another way to put, how do we put the digital in the real environment? How do we, you know, take these visuals to that next level and augmented reality and virtual reality, you know, or how to do that. Yeah. 
Well, that's such a funny way. Yeah. So next time you're at a nightclub, everyone listening, <laughs> pay yeah, attention to the light. You know, Coachella is <laughs> now doing it. Like, like the, I mean, the light shows yeah. at Coachella are incredible. Everything that's happening with like the drone light shows are amazing. Um, every year now, Coachella has augmented reality experiences overlaid on top of the show. You know, so it's so it cool. Makes- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Super cool. Actually, one of my favorite shows that I saw was MGMT and they had a horrible stage presence, but what they did have was an incredible, like it was, it was it definitely felt like augmented reality, but <laughs> it was not, but an incredible lights display during the whole show. And I was just like oh. fascinated. We all had glow sticks going along with it. It was amazing. Nice. Um, so yes, I, I think that music is one of the best ways to get into 3d experiences. For sure. That's my own personal opinion as someone who really enjoys listening to music, but you know, um, so I loved that whole story and thank you. Thank you for telling me about your childhood and stuff and really cool that your dad was able to build such a huge business and that takes so much work. Mm -hmm. Um, and you mentioned just from a very young age, hating writing, loving math and science. I think that's the thing that a lot of women experience, but we do see really low retention rates by the time women start to get into their late thirties ish in STEM and tech fields, what do you think we can do? And particularly we, I'm talking more so probably about small to mid-sized companies who have a lot of flexibility in their practice, not like society as a whole and enormous institutions, but what can people who are in positions of leadership within a business do to better recruit and retain women in STEM positions? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I do a lot of volunteering. I think it starts with teachers, right? And encouraging that from a young age. Uh, I had, I don't know, like an incredible third grade teacher who like let me do extra science experiments in the back of the room. I still remember. <laughs> uh, this is McKenzie. She was awesome. Um, so so it kind of starts there. And then, you know, I, I do lots of volunteering at USC, which, you know, I think 2020 was the first year we had like a 45% woman engineering freshman class, which is amazing. Cause when I graduated, like the graduating okay. engineering class was like 19% women. So, that, so the, the schools are doing a lot to help recruit and promote and retain more diverse students. So don't tell me it's a pipeline problem, <laughs> you know, and you know, like we're, we're fixing that problem. Right. And so then as a business, making sure that there's those entry level positions that have, uh, like training and support to grow into those next roles. And, and that's just good for your business in general, right? You want to be building mm-hmm. a pipeline of uh, students to mid mid managers. Um, but I think, and and this isn't like a gender or minority thing, but just humans, every human in general learns differently. And, you know, I think making sure you build a, a program, a, like a training program within your company that can help people get to that next level. And I'm not saying to like do special things for women. I'm I'm just saying in general, like you should have a clear path for promotion within your company. Um, which is good for like growth and retention in, in general. But I, I think just, just as a yeah. little side plug, yes, that is basically the number one reason people cite for resigning from cushy jobs yeah. is no growth potential. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I think doing that and I think you'll end up just being more attractive and more attractive to 
more people, which will give you a more diverse pool of candidates. And then of course, in your interview process, I think Airbnb did a study. They, they realized that they weren't hiring enough women or minorities and they realized like all the interviewers were men and they're like, Oh, we should throw in and make sure the interviewers are diverse. And lo and behold, when they switched up the interviewers, all of a sudden they were hiring more diverse people. Um, and I think it's a combination of so many factors of the, you know, if you're a minority coming in and you see another minority of the company, maybe you're more comfortable and confident in that interview. You know, like I, I think there's a lot of factors at play. Um, but that's like a very easy thing that you could do. Just make sure your people who are doing the interviews are diverse themselves some. So yeah, the Rooney rule, but for everyone. <laughs> if yeah. anyone and if we have any NFL fans out there. Um, if we don't, Google the Rooney rule. It's a good rule. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, actually, I, before we get into our last segment, I want to quickly just summarize everything we've talked about so far. We started with you giving me basically a whole primer on what Ventana does, which was super cool. And I, I truly mean that. Um, I really enjoyed getting to learn about the technology. Um, and what Ventana does do is streamline 3D from de- for design and manufacturing processes. Um, the, it's a, I'm going to say all of this and then you interject if I'm wrong, but it's a B2B, uh, software as a solution service that basically takes shape files from any 3d type of program that designers might use across industries and converts them into a much smaller, much more ready to use customer facing type of file, um, for use in advertisements, for use in collaboration. One really cool example that you gave was um, use in samples within the fashion industry. So allowing people to easily share those rather than creating a physical sample, which not only reduced costs, but severely, or I don't know if severely is the right word, impactfully reduced carbon footprint quite a bit. Um, one thing that I thought was super cool is that by using 3D models and going through the design process that way is one of your clients was able to go from a six-month design time to a three-week design time, which is a huge savings in so many ways. And so this is a B2B service with B2C impacts, meaning that clients can create better experience for their customers using the optimized files that come from Ventana. Did I get that right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like the easiest analogy is just like Vimeo and YouTube make it easy for you to upload, embed, and share video. Ventana makes it easy for you to upload, embed, and share 3D and AR. Which is so cool. It also democratizes AR and VR for all audiences because it removes difficulty in converting files to all kinds of different platforms for the person who created the files to then be able to use and share them. Um, And then we, after discussing Ventana, you just did a great job of explaining to me how you've interacted with the metaverse, which was so fun. I haven't had anyone on quite yet who's who's done it in the same way you have. I've certainly had people who are super involved in metaverse design and building, but you're someone who's been having metaverse meetups like before it was cool. You're like a metaverse hipster. (laughs) Um, So that was really, really fun to learn about. Um, I like that you called the metaverse the spatial internet. I think that that's an easy way to define it without getting lost in the hype. So it's just a new way of interacting with the digital world. Um, We actually talked about NFTs, which I wasn't necessarily expecting to come up, but they are the buzzword of the moment, but I don't think that you use it in a buzzwordy type way. Because um, what you were teaching me about is NFTs show that people do value digital ownership and assets and valuing, and they also value fully owning that asset 
or thing anywhere in the metaverse. So not just a single platform item. Um, we pivoted into a discussion on funding and building a company. Uh, you had said that you started by networking, building relationships over time, which can be difficult for women and minorities who don't traditionally kind of, there's some people who kind of start off with that network just in their circle. Um, and some people have to work a little bit more to get that network. And so you mentioned that you were a person who had to work a little more to, to get that network. Um, but that you started with mentorship, you started with coffee dates, you started with cold emails to even Mark Cuban. Um, and then you recommended venture deals as a resource for folks looking for funding. Um, when it comes to how we might be able to improve the funding space, one thing that you said that was really concrete was keeping evaluations of companies and founders consistent across the board, which can help bring more people into the room and remove some of the barriers for women and minorities, um, which I think is just a overall problem <laughs> not just yeah. funding society level it would be yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if evaluations were consistent for everybody definitely and we ended with recruiting and keeping women in stem um you shared a great story about how you grew up and became interested and shout out to your third grade science teacher for letting you do extra experiments <laughs> uh, but how it is important to nurture young women who show an interest in math and science colleges are doing a lot better to recruit and maintain uh, diverse students this is not necessarily every college, but I know that a lot of places are working really hard to make this top of mind, which means that the pipeline problem can no longer be stated on the business and hiring end. Then there is a pipeline. You have to go out and find the candidates. Um, but one thing that can help is by creating a path from entry level up and training programs for those who are interested in actually moving up that path. So actually having a vision for folks that start working at the company and figuring out a way to move them forward if they would like to do so is one of the best ways to attract and maintain employees. And then we also discussed the interview process and how making sure that the interviewers diverse are diverse means that you can help ensure that you get more diversity within your candidates. So that was a wide ranging discussion, but I like to end every podcast with what I call the moment of reflection. And this is just a chance for you to look back on your career. And the thing that I ask you to answer is what is the one thing you would like to tell your younger self about getting into the tech industry and being successful? Oh, man. Uh, I don't to, to celebrate the wins. I think Ooh. as you as you grow, you know, you're I, I have so many I think any entrepreneurs like this, you're always looking for that next thing, that next level you want to get to. Uh, and sometimes you forget to celebrate the wins along the way. Um, and you don't realize how far you've come. Uh, and so that would be my advice. I really like that. I haven't had anyone give that sort of advice. Um, but yeah, I think that women should uh, brag more. <laughs> you can still be humble and brag a little bit. It's fine. <laughs> it's possible. Even just for your own self, like enjoy, yeah. enjoy the, the wins when they happen and don't blow past and think about the next thing, you know, too fast. So <laughs> yeah, take a second. I get it. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you, follow you, read what you're thinking about? Find Ventana contact you for sales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, love LinkedIn. So just Ashley Crowder, you can find me there. You can follow Ventana on LinkedIn as well. Um, or go to our website. It's just vntana.com. So uh, it's like window in Spanish, Ventana without the E. So. <laughs>
I actually didn't put that together until you said it. <laughs> but that's great. For all the listeners out there, be sure to leave those five-star ratings and reviews. Check out other Holodeck Media podcasts, including Meta Business for all the metaverse finance stories you could ever want. Business of Esports for interviews with industry leaders. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Lindsay Poss. And you can catch me Wednesday nights on the Business of Esports live after show. You can catch this podcast in your feed every week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us here on Meta Woman. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review and tell your friends, family, and colleagues all about us. Also, make sure to follow Meta TV on all socials to get more of the best Metaverse content anywhere. Tune in every week for another episode of Meta Woman.